Hello. The Ford Institute, which kindly sponsors this podcast, is an organisation that promotes and cultivates ethical leadership. So today and in future episodes, I'm going to lean further into these issues. Today, for example, we're going to discuss the life of one of the most successful and influential business leaders of the 20th century, Tom Watson Jr., the longtime CEO of IBM a man who took his company from being a medium-sized national company to a sector-leading and highly innovative global corporation. Watson was also a man who stood for corporate social responsibility before the phrase had even been invented. The story of his life tells us something about the personality of leaders, about the enduring qualities of the successful, but also how much the world and its idea of leadership has changed bored of the same big ideas podcasts that teach you nothing sick of self-appointed leadership gurus who peddle the same tired old tropes want to really get under the skin of some fresh thinking then you've come to the right place this is forward vision the podcast presented by matthew taylor and brought to you by the forward institute so i'm delighted to welcome mark Wartman, co-author with Tom Watson Jr.'s grandson, Ralph Watson McAvenny, of a new book, The Greatest Capitalist Who Ever Lived, Tom Watson Jr. and the Epic Story of How IBM Created the Digital Age. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. I'm very happy to be here. So, Mark, let's start with the book title. Now, I know it's a quote from a newspaper tribute to Watson, but I'm interested, what do you think makes this claim, the claim that he was the greatest capitalist who ever lived? What do you think makes this claim credible? You know, when you make an extraordinary claim like this, of course, it's up for debate. But there's first what he did as a businessman. He built a company that returned to shareholders far more than any company had ever done up to that time. He built a company that became from a small or relatively small manufacturing firm into, by 1967, the most valuable company in the world, which it remained until displaced from that throne by Microsoft in 1998. So truly an extraordinary record of accomplishment as a businessman. But then there's what those accomplishments were based on. He made the computer an everyday part of business, scientific, and eventually normal everyday life. IBM, while he led the company, created the credit card industry, the automated banking industry, the airline reservation services, the backbone for the air and space defense systems for North America, and many other advances that really enabled the world we live in now. And then on top of that, he ran a company that was deeply ethical, highly principled. He said things like, everything in a business can change, but it's principles. So when you think of what makes greatness, to me, all those elements add up to him being somebody we could truly label the greatest capitalist who ever lived. 
and he was something of a celebrity. I mean, not on the scale of kind of Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, maybe. That's probably a more modern phenomenon. But in a world where businessmen weren't quite those kinds of high-profile figures that they are now, he, he was probably the most famous businessman in America, wasn't he? I think that's fair to say. There were obviously other major business figures in this period, but he was quite glamorous. He was a very handsome man, quite striking. He was a sporting man. He was a ski racer. He was a sailing racer, an ocean-going sailing racer. He flew every kind of airplane. And his family was quite close to the Kennedys. They were sort of the Kennedys of the corporate world. So the press took notice of all these different activities. And so put them in headlines that weren't just about business. And so when he, not as the head of IBM, but as a prominent private citizen, would often comment on political issues of the day, it made headlines. And he didn't hold back when it came to the major controversies of the day, stepping forward and giving his views and sometimes taking uh, punches back for it. Yeah, one of the fascinating details in the book was that his wife, Olive, that one of her first boyfriends was indeed Jack Kennedy, which is an, was an amazing sort of aside in the book. But, but as you say, they were close to the Kennedys. Now, I want to explore some of Watson's characteristics, but kind of sort of weave that in with his life story. So I think we have to start where the book starts. And indeed, about a quarter of the book is really a biography of his father rather than of him. Now, that might seem a bit odd to spend that much time on the father. But of course, the reason you spend that much time on the father is not only that the father is the creator of IBM, but also it is impossible, isn't it, to understand Watson Jr. without understanding that relationship with his father. Absolutely. Absolutely. You hit, hit the nail on the head there. It's quite telling that in the latter years of his life, Thomas Watson Jr. wrote a memoir that he titled Father, Son, and Company. And you really can't understand IBM without understanding the Watsons and the way in which they were intertwined with the company. Thomas Watson Sr. created IBM based primarily on a 19th century technology called the tabulator, which was sort of like a player piano producing punched out cards that could then be sorted with the punches, meaning different formulas that could be used for various types of calculations. And he built that company into a, quite a substantial firm. But in doing so, he also created this sort of personality called within the company. Everything that happened at IBM emanated from him. And he did things like put pictures of himself up in every IBM office and sayings that he wrote and expected the employees to arrive first thing in the morning and sing songs to his praise. And his son, Thomas Watson Jr., was being raised to become the next leader of IBM. And Thomas Watson Jr., as a young man, absolutely despised what he was seeing in the way his father ran the company. And they clashed constantly, constantly in brutal fights, fights that 
sometimes ended up in shouting matches and leaving the both in tears. And these things would happen in public. And they would both run off screaming and swearing. So it was one of those father-son relationships that are so deeply enmeshed with the combination of love and hatred that you can't quite separate them. But at the same time, Thomas Watson Jr. had all this ambition that he thought he could one day run IBM himself and run it better than his father. Yeah, and it's a classic story, isn't it? It's a story of a young man growing up in the shadow of this domineering father who pushes against that, rebels, wants nothing to do with his father, then goes through moments of transition in his life, which we'll come to in a minute, accepts that he needs to, in some ways, follow his father, then ends up surpassing his father and taking the mantle from his father and in the end becoming completely reconciled and clearly following his father's death, revering his father and wanting to memorialize him in a whole number of ways. So there's a kind of classic arc to that. But the father is always there. You always feel reading this book that Tom Watson Sr. is always on the shoulder of Tom Watson Jr. Now, and of course, there are other elements to this kind of story, this kind of, you know, sometimes I thought of Shakespeare, sometimes I thought of the TV series Succession. There's Dick, of course, or Arthur, he's known as Dick in the family, his brother, who the father seeks an accommodation between the two brothers. He aspires to Tom Jr. taking over and then passing on to his younger brother. But but in the end, for reasons we'll explore in a moment, Dick doesn't quite get there. And Tom has the incredibly difficult responsibility, I guess, of saying to his brother that he's not going to be able to follow him. Now, before we get into a bit more of that, Watson, as you've already intimated, he was an emotionally charged person. He was someone capable of great warmth, generosity, of charisma, but also of, of rage and more privately of depression. Most people revered him, they loved him, he inspired them, but he could also leave people fearful, intimidated, exhausted. Now, I kind of suspect, Mark, that now that kind of volatility in a leader would probably be frowned. And I was, as I read the book, I was thinking to myself, well, to what extent would Tom Watson Jr. today thrive? And I think in one way, they're probably that kind of volatility is probably not so acceptable in today's corporate environment. I think you're right that the kind of anger boiled over into rage, the willingness he had to intimidate people and to force them constantly to be on their toes when near him, that sort of thing probably wouldn't work as well in the modern workplace. Of course, somebody like Elon Musk, who has managed to become the world's richest person in building multiple companies, you could say that he has some of the, well, not just some, a lot of that same level of volatility and anger and willingness to cut people to the bone. Except Watson coupled it with an awareness of his own failings. He was willing, when he made a mistake, to own up to it. 
And then on top of that, he wanted people around him who could stand up to him. His leadership, he knew, depended on honest evaluations of what was going on within the company. IBM was growing by leaps and bounds. He had to know what was going on, and he had to trust because he was decentralizing decision-making that his father had kept entirely centralized, that he was getting honest feedback about the company and what it was facing. So the people he surrounded himself with, he said he deliberately sought out people with sharp elbows who could stand up to him and also let him know what the truth was. So you really have to take all of this together to understand his leadership style, his sense of awareness, so that he could basically see over the hill. And as he kept the ship of the company and being a, a yachtsman, a sailor, he often thought of himself as a skipper, to be able to see over the horizon, to see where the storms were coming and to see how to catch the wind in the company's sails. Yes, and that's something well, that the book gets across, I think is quite poignant in a sense, is that the fact that he suffers from depression and the fact that he is so volatile is connected also to this very attractive quality of him being a reflective person, aware of his own limitations, willing in a way that I think would have been quite unusual for powerful men at that time to own up to his own kind of vulnerabilities in a sense. And it's also really interesting to to flip towards the end of the story, actually, that his commitment to having the best people around him, even if those people were challenging people, ultimately leads to the kind of, kind of almost emotional tragedy that he has to choose between his brother and someone he really doesn't like very much, but who is a very effective leader to step into his shoes. And he chooses the man he doesn't like very much. And that, in a sense, is in keeping with the way he's worked throughout his life, isn't it? Yes, he was leading a large, fast-growing, and ultimately gigantic corporation. And in the course of that, he was constantly making significant, bold decisions. He was a risk taker. And when the time came that he had to choose between the success of the corporation and his love for his brother. And this was truly, his brother was somebody he truly loved. He talked about his depression. His brother, since they were children, his brother, who was five years younger than he, his formal name was Arthur, but he was known as Dick, that Dick was the one person who could pull him out of his depressions. And these were significant major depressions. But when the moment came that the company was in grave crisis, Dick was in charge of getting the company out of that crisis, which involved a major revolutionary product that the company had essentially bet its future on and ran the risk of going belly up if it didn't succeed. Dick proved unable to get it out of the problems it was facing and Watson sidelined him and instead chose a man, T. Vincent Learson, whom he actually disdained. 
There was open dislike between the two. At one point, they literally almost came to blows. But he chose the future success of IBM over his personal love for his brother. And that actually resulted in some terrible schisms in the family and grave tragedy for the family as well. Yes, absolutely. Now, you've touched, Mark, on this issue of risk-taking. And this is a point in the book where... I was reminded of something I've often thought, really, and this comes from a position of inadequacy, really. I'm, a, I'm not a brave person. I have never intentionally risked my life, and nor really have I had to confront terrible tragedy. And, and this is a predisposition I have, I know, but when I read the stories of great people, I feel so often that their characteristics include that they have survived tragedy, but also that they are willing to risk everything, that this is part of their personality. And it was certainly part of Watson's personality. You know, he would risk his life in aeroplane. He did risk his life in aeroplanes. He could have died over and over again flying early aeroplanes or then later in life flying more sophisticated aeroplanes, but flying them in dangerous ways, in sailing some of the most dangerous routes around the world. And I also, this links into this really important formative moment in his life. So, you know, this Henry IV kind of story of this dissolute young man who reaches this point at which they they move beyond that into adulthood almost. And, and this moment in his life is during the Second World War. Two things really happen. One is that he finds meaning in his life. And this is meaning around the way you can help the war effort in particular, build a route to enable... American aircraft to come to the aid of the Red Army in Russia. But also he discovers another father figure, a father figure, an uncomplicated father figure, unlike his real father, who can guide him and influence him and who he can love in a way that's not complicated, but like his relationship with his father. Those years, those Second World War years, those years in Alaska, Siberia, they are pivotal to, to his life, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Relatively few of us have these sort of turning points in our lives. So Watson, as a young man, he was he was known locally as Terrible Tommy. He was in trouble all the time. He was failing out of school. It took him three different high schools, as we call it, to graduate. He was a troublemaker and he was troubled. He was a ne'er-do-well playboy. And then when he flew during World War II as the principal pilot for a general named Follett Bradley, who, as you mentioned, was sent by uh, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to work with Stalin to set up the Lend-Lease air route, flying aircraft being manufactured in the United States to get them to the Eastern Front by way of Alaska and Siberia and up through Persia. In the course of that time of Follett Bradley, he several times had near-death experiences. But the experience of death in that type of arena sort of annoyed him to the risks that he would undertake as a businessman. The risks that he undertook in later years, they weren't foolish risks as a business person, they were calculated risks in the same way that as a pilot of a World War II 
era aircraft flying immense distances. This takes great calculation, logistical thinking. How do you plot out this passage? How do you supply yourself for this passage? How do you get there safely? And all of these things deeply impressed General Bradley, who told Watson at one point toward the end of the war, when Watson was thinking after the war, he wanted to become an airline pilot. And Bradley told him, well, no, I thought you were going to go back and head up IBM. And Watson said to him, wow, you really think I could do that? And he said, absolutely. And that was the sort of confidence in him that he never got from his own father. His own father constantly sought to undermine him. At the same time, he was claiming that he expected his son to follow him at IBM. So a moment in his life that transformed him, made him the leader that he became. So Mark, the book is a biography of Tom Watson Jr., but it's also in large part a biography of, of IBM. And indeed, in the kind of central part of the book, it's almost more about IBM than it is about Tom. And let's just talk about a couple of aspects of this kind of IBM story. So the first is, again, from the kind of perspective of 2023, there's something paradoxical about IBM, I felt, which was that on the one hand, its business model in some ways was kind of monopolistic. And even it could even, I think, be described as rent-seeking, really. It was about creating dependency getting your customers into a position of dependency where they had to buy your products and then exploiting that relationship to maximize profitability and to and make it almost impossible for competitors to anyone else to compete. And IBM time and again gets into trouble with various federal competition authorities for its behavior. But on the other hand, it's also a company deeply committed to service and, and Watson himself is deeply committed to service. And that is at the heart of IBM. And when he leaves IBM and it changes and it stops having service at the heart of it, he deeply regrets that that happened. So the, I guess the point is, is there a relationship between this kind of two sides? Is it because, in a sense, IBM has this kind of slightly dodgy, rent-seeking, monopolistic business model that it's able then to provide that level of service and the expectation of service. You know, they expected salespeople to know about their client's family, to write to them if a member of the family was ill or died or anything like that. Are they two sides of the same coin, Mark? Well, certainly what IBM did at that time wasn't outside of what other corporations were seeking, whether you were an airline or the telephone company that controlled telephone service in the United States, you always sought to find ways to lock in your customers. But once IBM agreed to its antitrust consent decree, with the United States Justice Department, the company understood that it was always in a position where it couldn't make decisions that would lead to greater monopoly. But if you go forward, the nature of technology often is that the companies seek to find a way to make the technology 
so valuable that the customer will always want to be a customer and remain a customer. The idea behind that is essentially one, as you said, of service. It's, of course, also one of a technology that you need to, once you've bought in, you want to continue on with it. You know, whether it's enterprise software, the basic operating system on our computers now, whether it's Microsoft or Apple, they're all in a position essentially to try to drive a kind of monopolistic use of them. Now, we can say that if it gets too large and too predominant, then it's going to be bad for society as a whole. It can lead to uh, inflationary prices. It can lead to loss of competition. But if there are authorities that can rein that in, which is what happened with IBM, then you can actually develop a much larger industry around it. And that's actually what took place with IBM. Once IBM's lock on the earlier tabulator industry was broken, suddenly other competitors were rushing in. And then with the computer, as IBM grew, the opportunities emerged for many other companies. And suddenly you had an entire ecosystem, granted, centered around the IBM products, but that ecosystem became the digital age that we live in now. Well, the book, Mark, contains many fascinating, vivid characters, but one of its characters isn't a human being. One of its characters is a computer, the 360 model. And this is, you know, just as for Tom Jr., his experiences in the Second World War are his kind of linchpin kind of moment for IBM, this 360 model is a critical moment for the company. So I just want to explore for a couple of minutes that story, but just help me to understand what was different, what was most innovative about the 360? Well, first, I hope your listeners understand what computers were back then. Computers were gigantic machines we're talking about in the 1950s and 60s and well into the 1970s. And the principal difference between the prior computers and what IBM developed into the system 360 was that computers before then were essentially bespoke machines. They were tailored to the specific needs of the client within a certain industry. You wanted machines that could run fast and churn out a lot of information for business purposes. A machine that could do calculations at speeds humans could not possibly produce, but each of those efforts required a specific type of very expensive computer. And IBM had competitors who were coming along and saying, well, for your specific type of computer, I, in fact, can do it better than IBM and cheaper than IBM. And so IBM began, was growing incredibly fast, but Watson saw that the growth was slowing down. And he didn't think that made sense when you had this new technology that was so valuable. And so he set a committee of engineers from within the company to begin to rethink that process. And they came up with the blueprint for a universally compatible 
stored program computer, the mainframe computer that could be used whether for business purposes or for scientific purposes, and that could grow with the customer's needs. And so along comes in 1964, the announcement that they were going to create this all-in-one computer called the System 360. Well, it took more than two years to finally achieve what they said the 360 could do. And in the interim, it set off a grave crisis within the company, which, as, as we discussed, led to the termination, the effective termination of Dick Watson within the company. But when it came out, it set the world on fire. It basically made the computer the indispensable tool within every corporation. And IBM, which had already been growing very fast, took off and very soon became the most valuable corporation in history up to that time. But as you say, Mark, in the middle of this, it looked pretty grim. And, you know, the company was having a kind of collective nervous breakdown, nearly ran out of money. And however hard they might have tried to kind of keep a lid on this, people could see, the business press could see, observers and competitors could see that they were missing their key deadlines and they they had to admit it. They were on the verge of disaster. This is the biggest risk of Watson's career. I suspect, you know, you wouldn't get away with that now. I suspect that our short-termism now, the scrutiny, the 24-hour media scrutiny of what goes on in businesses would mean that the patience that was required, they had enough stock, they had enough credibility, their relationships with their customers were enough to help them get through this. I suspect for a modern corporation, the chief executive would have gone by the time this started to succeed. The investors want to run out of patience. Do you think the story of the 360, the capacity to get through this long period of doubt and fear and things going wrong, would you agree with me that that's probably not possible in the modern world in the same way? That's a, a very good assessment. And of course, we're in a, a very different environment in which a sort of vertically integrated technology firm like IBM would rarely have the ability to ward off the scrutiny of so many different uh, stakeholders in the company, which IBM was able to do then. But even so, I mean, you mentioned earlier about IBM's uh, near monopolistic uh, dominance of the industry, but it was a new technology and customers were peeling off. They did have other places to go. And so IBM was scrutinized and IBM was losing business. And as you say, IBM was hemorrhaging capital. Getting the 360 out took double IBM's revenue in 1964. So to compare it to let's say present-day IBM, that would be almost a $150 billion investment. And no other company at that time could possibly have carried this off. But you're certainly right that it would be very difficult in quarter-by-quarter quarter reporting to shareholders for somebody like Watson to remain in place. But we talked at the very beginning about his sort of strong public presence and stature 
you know, there were times when IBM stock tanked and there was no question that the press was after IBM. You know, it used to be called Fortress IBM and then it started to crumble and the press was talking about what was called the $5 billion gamble, which was the uh, cost of, of getting the 360 out back in, in the early 1960s, more than the cost of the Manhattan Project to build the atomic bomb. And yet, part of the way that the company survived was because of Watson's stature, that people could respect that this was somebody who could lead a great company into its future. So we can't separate the man, the risk, and the company in making this uh, revolutionary leap ahead. No, that's absolutely right. Modern companies, the Amazons and the Googles and the Apples, this well, you know, they make investments that, that don't work out and lose loads of money. Google Glasses is an example that comes immediately to to mine. But I think the thing is, really, they bet IBM bet the whole bank on 360. This wasn't a development project. Meanwhile, they were making loads and loads of money in the rest of the business. Everything was on the 360. They announced the 360, in a sense, is going to supplant all our existing products. That's why it was such a huge gamble. That's why there was such internal opposition to it. Now, let's finish, Mark, by returning to the man himself, to Tom Watson Jr. He was a progressive figure. That's another thing that's interesting. And as, as you say, a publicly progressive figure. He treated his staff incredibly well. At no point, despite all the ups and downs in IBM, did he ever lay people off. I mean, he he got rid of people because he didn't think they were good enough, but he didn't lay people off, make them redundant as a result of the kind of economic, the commercial condition of IBM. And he was also ahead of his time in terms of inclusion. He was outspokenly hostile to racism. He It came late, but IBM started to encourage more women to come forward. So, you know, he was a progressive figure. Absolutely. Well, and you didn't mention that while... The southern states in the United States still had segregationist laws on the books. When he went to open factories in the Jim Crow states of Kentucky and North Carolina in the early 1950s, the governor objected to the factories being desegregated. Governors of the states were insisting that the factories have separate black and white restroom and eating facilities. And Watson said, absolutely not. We won't do that. And even after that point, published in newspapers around the country, a memorandum that he issued saying that IBM does not discriminate for race, creed, or religion. And the governors, they wanted those factories and they accepted them. And Watson was also a, a very progressive figure. He sought to... Uh, ameliorate relations, the tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. And Carter eventually appointed him as his ambassador to the Soviet Union. And sadly, that was at the point at which the Soviet Union decided to invade Afghanistan. That put the kibosh on the possibilities for detente at the time that Watson had been eager to uh, assist in. But he was, he was a Kennedy, Democrat, liberal, and thought of the computer as a tool that could help ameliorate social problems in the country. 
Yes, and we could do with someone with his values and vision when we consider the prospects of AI, for example. Well, you've hinted there, Mark, at some of the other aspects of this absolutely fascinating story. And of course, even in his old age, when he is retired from IBM and largely from public life, he carries on having adventures. He carries on taking risks. And it's typical of him that at the end, when he realizes he can no longer do that, he essentially ends his own life or asks his physician to end uh, his life. Typical of him, I think, that he wanted to be in control right up to the very end. Which leads me, Mark, to one final question. It's a, a slightly trite question, you'll have to forgive me, but what lessons do you think that modern leaders might draw from the life of Tom Watson, Jr.? Not trite at all. We need to read about the leaders of the past in order to see how we measure up, where we fall short, and what we can draw from them. From Watson, there are some sort of simple lessons. He started off with IBM means service. And this really is the basic of go to whatever length to make your customers succeed. And internally leading, he said managers should go to whatever length to make their charges succeed. Sort of a motto that he lived by was, move, always move, never lie dead in the water. If you make a mistake, you can correct it. So there was that forward urge that is essential if you're going to lead an organization. And then he also had something that came about from his relationship with his father, which was this deep fear of failure. He wanted to succeed because he wanted to prove to the old man, as he would say, that he could do it and maybe even do it even better than his father had. And that fear of failure could be paralyzing. But instead, in his case, it became something where he was constantly on guard where he was looking for both the potential threat that a competitor might represent and where opportunity lay and where it was important to take risks to capture that opportunity. And when opportunity arises, and they don't arise very often, and certainly not that sort of world-changing opportunity that he saw, but when it's there, the leader of the company has to take that big risk and go bold. Well, I've been engrossed by this book over the last week. I've almost felt like I was kind of part of this story that was unfolding as I read The Greatest Capitalist Who Ever Lived, Tom Watson Jr. and the epic story of how IBM created the digital age. I, I encourage other people to, to read the book. It's um, it's absolutely captivating. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a really enjoyable time. Reading this fascinating and highly engaging story made me feel, well, deeply inadequate as a leader, as a person. I, I'd never been willing to risk my life or the organizations that I run. 
Yet reading a thrilling story like this does encourage us to ask ourselves questions about what really matters in our work and in our life, what we are capable of doing if we want our lives to be the most exciting stories that they can be. And finally, I must admit that in the past, I've not been a great reader of biographies or autobiographies, but maybe now, partly in service of this podcast and you, my patient listener, I will be. Goodbye. The Forward Institute is a non-profit organisation with the mission of building a movement for responsible leadership. With a network of global business leaders, the Forward Institute facilitates cross-sector learning, creating space for challenging conversations and exploring the very real dilemmas leaders face. For more information, visit forward.institute.